Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you dream of living in a period property, be aware of the nightmares that owners of listed buildings can face. Married? Both own your own home? Don't let the romance be clouded by the stamp duty love tax Paul Lewis of BBC Moneybox dials in to explain. And amid the Tory party renaissance, what's the outlook for pensions? Our pensions correspondent Josephine Cumbo gives her insights from the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you the week's money news in downloadable form. Listeners who enjoy browsing through the property pages will be familiar with the romanticised descriptions that estate agents love to apply to period properties. A most attractive grade 2 listed Georgian residence. It's all very Downton Abbey. But it is vital for potential purchasers to be aware of the pitfalls of buying a listed building or risk their fantasy residence becoming a house of financial pain. I'm joined in the FT studio by James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, who's written about the issue this week. Welcome, James. Thank you. Now, what kind of costs do listed building owners face that ordinary house owners simply don't? Well, the reason that they face generally higher costs is that if you have a listed building and you want to make any changes to it, whether externally or internally, Mm. put in a new bathroom or kitchen, you are allowed to do that, but you have to get it signed off by the conservation officer at the local council. Right. And they can come in and they can determine exactly how you should do that. They can put in place rules about the materials you have to use to be in keeping with the original building. And those often are difficult to get hold of or mm. uh, the skills are difficult to obtain. So, for instance, a man I spoke to who had to repair a wall in front of his Tudor property um, you would have thought these red bricks would be pretty standard, but of course he had to buy handmade bricks because they were ever so slightly a different size, the old imperial brick measure, (laughs) Uh, not the standard bricks. And of course they were twice the price. Well, and it's not just that that pushes up the costs. The insurance and the running costs are also part of the Indeed, insurance is typically higher because, let's say you had a fire or or a flood which damaged the property. Your thatch went up in ruins. Absolutely, went up in flames. In order, again, the conservation officer might well come around and say, you have to rebuild this uh, exactly according to the original authentic specifications. And that's going to cost you a lot more. So therefore, the insurance, the Mm. premium is going to cost you a lot more. And of course, running costs can be higher. Energy in a drafty property, certainly unusual for you to be able to 
put in plastic double UPC glazing. UPC double glazing. <laughs> uh, you, you may, you know, some of the windows can be quite good in terms of their energy, but often a lot of them it's harder to heat and it's going to cost you more. Well, then let's look at the inside. If you buy a listed house and find that some previous owner has bodged it, surely that's not your responsibility. Well. It is, actually. So going back as far as the 1950s, say, you could be liable for things that people have done which they shouldn't have done, previous owners. And this often comes out when, let's say, you do want to update your kitchen, Mm. you invite in the conservation officer to talk about it, and he walks through the door and says oh, I didn't realise they'd taken away that staircase. (laughs) And suddenly you're in for a lot more than you bargained for. And I imagine many people, especially fans of Downton Abbey, might think of listed homeowners as the landed gentry easily able to shoulder these costs, but that's not the case, you found? Certainly not. According to the Listed Property Owners Club, which is the biggest members club for listed properties, they point to research which shows that 50% of listed owners are in the sort of socioeconomic classes of C, D and E, which Mm. is the lowest classes. So this is not always Lord Snooty um, (laughs) cashing in for his baronial pile. And finally, VAT. Alterations to listed buildings used to be zero rated for VAT, but the government scrapped this in 2012. What effect has this had on costs? Raised them by 20% in a lot of cases. When your costs are already high because Mm. of materials and skills and so forth, this is pretty painful for a lot of listed property owners. And indeed, the LPAC, the the members' organisation, is campaigning to have that rescinded. However, there is a lower rate of 5% rate of VAT that you can qualify for in certain circumstances, whether you own a listed or an unlisted property. And that's if you're converting a barn or an office to a home, or you're changing, you're converting a home so as to change the number of dwellings within it in either direction, whether up or down. And the other one is if you leave a property empty for two years, and this was designed to try and regenerate high streets. But you know, if, let's say, you buy a property and you can afford to leave it empty for two years and live elsewhere for two years, then you'll be charged 5% VAT on the work that you eventually do on that property. Very interesting. Thanks very much there to James Pickford, Deputy Money Editor. You can read FT Money's cover feature, What You Need to Know Before You Buy a Listed Building, from this Friday online at ft.com money and in FT Money, of course, as part of your weekend newspaper. Still to come on The Money Show, the pensions outlook from Birmingham. But before that, it's time to welcome FT Money columnist and Moneybox presenter Paul Lewis to the show. Now, Paul, you've written about stamp duty in your FT Money column this week, and I must say, I thought it was so good, I'd like to marry you. That's very kind of you. Very kind of you indeed, Claire. I think, though, both of us are spoken for. But you're asking me, I think, perhaps not because you love me, but because, <laughs> because you want me to talk about what I'm calling stamp duty love tax. Well, yes, I mean, we could probably sort out the business of ending our existing marriages without too much bother, but because I own a property and happen to need to remortgage and you own a property as well, this could potentially stand in our way. I think this could be the deal breaker because, after all, money is the main concern in these events, so that could be the deal breaker. But it's a little, well, quite a big wrinkle for the people who it affects that we've discovered in the stamp duty land tax rules. Mm. And it affects people who, you know, two professional people, they've both got their own home, they meet, they fall in love, they decide to get married, and one moves in with the other. Keeping the other house or flat and renting it out, which is a sensible thing many people do. So far, no problem, no stamp duty land tax. But then if the home that they live in together needs remortgaging, 
even if one partner owns it and could afford a mortgage just in their own name, most of the big mortgages, mortgage lenders would say, no, you've both got to be on the deeds. So the property, or at least as much of it as is involved in the remortgage, mm-hmm. has to be transferred to the spouse. And at that moment, that spouse owns two properties. They are buying a second property because they've still got their rented out property somewhere. And at that moment, that triggers the additional stamp duty for people who have a second home. Now, the case study that you refer to in your column involves a couple from Leeds called Stuart and Ellie. Mm. Now, they found that they would face this unexpected tax bill of nearly £2,500 when they tried to remortgage. So talk Mm. us through how that happened. Well, Stuart and Ellie met, fell in love and decided to get married. Ellie moved in with Stuart and then Stuart realised that his mortgage was coming up for renewal, as most mortgages do now. Mm. You get a cheap deal for two years, needed to remortgage, went to a lender and his conveyancer said, well, I'm really sorry, but, you know, you're going to have to pay stamp duty land tax. Or Ellie is technically because she's going to be the proud owner of two homes. And he checked. He checked with a couple of lawyers. They gave him different answers. Mm. He checked with HMRC that wasn't quite sure but did warn that if they didn't pay the tax and then had to pay it later, there'd be penalties and and interest certainly charged on it. And so he contacted me through Twitter and I looked into it and the Treasury confirmed that because she had acquired an interest or would be acquiring a major interest in a property, she would be charged this additional stamp duty land tax, which they see as deeply unfair because, of course, this is intended to stop people owning you know, or put a price penalty on them owning a succession of series of properties. But no extra properties involved in this case. She is just acquiring a bit of the house she lives in, her main residence. But that doesn't make any difference. Now, at what level is this tax payable? Because the way the revenue talk about it is that it's payable on the consideration, so her share of the mortgage debt. Yes, it's her share of the mortgage debt. Now, in this case, that was about £160,000. The, the remortgage, half of that remortgage price, never mind the value of the home, half of that remortgage price would then be her consideration, as they called it, even though she's not actually paying anything, she's taking on a debt for that amount. So the stamp duty land tax is due on the 80-odd thousand pounds, and that's why, as you said, it's about two and a half thousand pounds. Now, if the mortgage had been for £80,000 or less altogether, mm. her consideration would be less than £40,000, and that's the threshold for this additional stamp duty land tax. So she wouldn't have had to pay it if the remortgaged amount had been less than £80,000. And but are the, they going to pay it? Well, they think there may be a way out, but this is a bit difficult. Some lenders are OK with a married couple where just one of the spouses is the owner and the borrower. Mm. They're okay with that. Not all lenders are, but in fact, a great majority of them are not. But the problem is the lenders that are happy with that aren't the best value. So they think they're going to have to pay more for their mortgage. Now, that's probably going to cost them less than the £2,400-odd that they will have to pay in stamp duty land tax otherwise. But that's probably what they're going to do. But when I last spoke to them, they hadn't quite 
sorted that out. But what they feel, what Stuart certainly felt, was that it was deeply unfair. No property, there was no extra property involved. No. Nothing was changing hands. No house was being denied to a first-time buyer. And he thinks it's probably just a way of getting extra stamp duty off what must be thousands, if not tens of thousands of couples who will find themselves in this position. So he's going to be talking to his local MP and hopes, maybe it will happen, maybe it won't, that the new Chancellor will think about this in the autumn statement or the budget. Well, thanks very much there to Paul Lewis. We certainly love him, the freelance journalist, FT Money columnist and presenter of BBC Moneybox, which airs on Saturdays at noon. You can read his column now on the stamp duty love tax on ft.com slash money. And if you think that you'll be affected by this problem, do get in touch. Money at ft.com. November's autumn statement will be presided over by a new Chancellor, Philip Hammond, and a new pensions minister, Richard Harrington. So what new policy direction should FT money readers expect? I'm joined in the studio by Josephine Cumbo, the FT's pensions correspondent, and Mark Fawcett, chief investment officer at Nest, the state-backed workplace pensions provider, to discuss. Firstly, Joe, you've just got back from the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. What were the key pensions messages there? Damien Green, the Working Pensions Secretary, gave a keynote speech yesterday and he touched on a couple of points. Number one, the triple lock, which is the guarantee that the state pension will rise by the greater of 2.5% earnings or inflation is going to stay. So they're going, they're committed Hurrah. to that, at least till 2020, until the next election. Good news for pensioners there. And he, he did say that commitment also cover pensioner benefits such as the winter fuel allowances and bus passes, etc. The other new announcement that he made was that there was going to be a business champion for older workers, oh, a right. business czar, someone to champion the cause uh, in business of keeping older workers on board. Now, this all fits into this working longer agenda. Work till you die. Yes, because yes. the triple lock, uh, the state pension, no doubt, will the age you access it will increase. So we've got to start thinking about working longer. And Andy Briggs was appointed the older workers champion. He is the chief executive of Aviva UK. Very unfortunate timing because Aviva mm. was today fined £8 million for client money breaches by the FCA and Andy Briggs was apologising the day after being appointed older workers a champion. Well, a noble move um, mm. to champion mm-hmm. the rights of older people in the workplace. What else did we hear from the pensions minister Well, on himself? the fringes, not in the hall, not where things were being shouted uh, to hordes of people on the fringes, there was dis- debates and discussions. A key issue which came up time and time again at the panel sessions that I attended was poor take up of advice post pension mm. freedoms now since 2015 people could do what they want from the age of 55 with their pension savings but the trend is that fewer people are getting advice pensions guidance it was said and argued that it should be made compulsory currently no one needs to go to pension wise it's voluntary it's the free guidance service but there were suggestions that it should be made compulsory so people at least know what their options are the other idea which is floating around and certainly there was discussion but there wasn't any firm direction of travel mm. from the government was taxation pensions tax relief mm. it's always in the air there was nothing stated by either the pensions minister or the DWP or indeed the treasury about the future direction but 
I think the feeling is now Theresa May, her government is more inclusive, wanting to reach out, a government for everybody, yeah. that reforming tax relief, I would say, is still on the table. So currently it's structured in a way higher earners get higher rate tax relief, basic earners get basic tax relief, but the lion's share of tax relief goes to higher rate earners. Of course. Yes. And, and, and desist, many desist. of whom are, are FT money readers, of yes. course. So a, an interesting theme that we'll be um, reporting on listeners in the run-up to, to the autumn statement on the 23rd of November. So I'm going to bring in Mark now. Now, the pension freedoms have obviously proved very popular, £6 billion worth of popularness. But recent research which you have conducted suggests that savers are not entirely comfortable with the freedoms they now have. So there's absolutely no doubt that our members value freedom and flexibility. I think the, the key issue is is they're, they're scared of making the wrong decision. Mm. And, and our research shows that very strongly. So many of them either can't afford advice or, or don't want to take advice and yet they feel unable to take decisions. So there's clearly a need for them to have access to products where they can easily transition from saving and working into retirement and getting a retirement income without taking a lot of complex decisions. Now, your research, Mark, also showed that while people want freedom and and they like the idea of having more choice, that they still want something as old-fashioned as a secure income. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, absolutely. So most of our members believe they're saving with Nest to have an income in retirement. It's not about having just access to, to lump sums. So the challenge for them is, I've got a pot of thirty, forty thousand pounds How much income can I take that from that in a sustainable way? And the traditional response is, well, you buy an annuity, but we also know from the research that, that people are reluctant to buy annuities a whole bunch of behavioural reasons. You know, they think they're going to be knocked over by a bus tomorrow. And so they lose the, the capital. So they yeah. so lose it all. So, so there's a clear need to help them understand what a sustainable income is from, from that pot. Now, you are floating and you're proposing um, something very unique, which isn't offered in the UK retirement income market, which can offer customers potentially a mix of the holy grail of flexibility and secure income. Do you want to tell us a little more about what your ideas are? Yeah, so our concept, which we call our retirement income blueprint, is designed to give a lot of flexibility in the early years, but basically be invested in a sort of drawdown portfolio, which will generate an income. Alongside that, there's a rainy day fund, a cash fund, so that people, if they need to sort of repair a washing machine or, or their car, they can access that without impacting their income. And then at the tail end, there's a later life protected income, which is designed like an annuity that yeah, kicks effectively in to protect them from outliving their income. Right. And the, the beauty of it would be that people really don't have to engage too yeah. much. It's like a default, you know, they glide through this process. The, the sort of key differentiating feature is rather than they set mm. the income level, the governance body, where, you know, whether it's a board of trustees or whoever's overseeing the scheme, will determine what the sustainable income is. And that will be revised and reviewed on a regular basis, say, every year. So that, you know, it's really hard. It's a complex decision to understand how much to withdraw from your pot. Unless you're an actuary. Yeah, unless, you're, <laughs> unless you're an actuary and an investment expert. Yes. You know, so we think that we shouldn't be asking people to make decisions, which is really hard to make. OK, now your stake back provider, whatever you do, has to get the stamp of approval of the politicians. When would it be possible for this kind of retirement income solution to be offered? So our mission has always been to you know, help millions of people have a good retirement. 
Our mission hasn't changed, but the landscape has because you know we've now got no longer have compulsory annuitization. So the DWP is currently consulting. Uh, the call for evidence closes today to see what Ness role in retirement should be. I mean, I would stress we've always offered retirement solutions. So initially we offered an annuity panel. Currently we offer Muff Plus plus you know access to the open market. We think it's important that people have, as I say, this easy transition into retirement and we should offer a product to deliver that. Thank you, Mark. Well, thanks very much there to Josephine Cumbie, the FT's pensions correspondent and studio guest Mark Fawcett of Nest. We'd love to hear your views on pensions policy, the stamp duty love tax and money matters more generally. You can email us money at ft.com, tweet us at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash guess what money. The Money Show will be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's Currencies Correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.